You're listening to Sphera Now, a podcast focused on safety, sustainability, and productivity issues. This is brought to you by Sphera, a leading global provider of integrated risk management software, data, and consulting services with a focus on environment, health, safety, and sustainability, operational risk management, and product stewardship. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Sphere Now ESG podcast, a program focused on safety, sustainability, and productivity issues. I'm James Tarani, Sparks Editor-in-Chief. Today, I will be speaking with Sandy Smith, Sphere's Vice President of Sales in EMEA and APEC, about his observations from the recently completed COP26 event in Glasgow, Scotland. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sandy. How are you? Hey, James. Nice to see you. Well, let's get into it. Before we do, I'm sure most of our listeners will know what COP26 is, but just for the few who might not, can you give us a brief overview of what COP26 is? Okay. So COP26, as the number would suggest, is the 26th time we've we've gathered together kind of politicians, industry, NGOs to come and solve the challenge of climate change. So that's the kind of main purpose of it. So it's happened 26 times. It goes around different countries. Every five years, and the COP26 in Glasgow was five years after Paris, so it is one of the big events. They have a bigger COP event where they come and have a special focus and refocus on, on the specific climate commitments that are being made. So Glasgow was sort of the centre of the world for a few weeks there. The plans have been working on it. The UK had the presidency uh, this year, actually UK with, with Ireland, actually, sorry, Italy was, was helping support. They had the presidency this year. They were working over the past two years, so there was a lot of work going on for a lot of time and a lot of build-up and excitement about COP coming about. And yeah, for, for two weeks or two weeks and a couple of days, because it, it did overrun into the weekend and some significant changes happened on the on the Saturday and the Sunday. It, everyone kind of you know had their eyes on COP, whether it was politicians, businesses, NGOs or consultants like our, ourselves working in the sustainability marketplace. Did you have any one-on-ones with any world leaders while you were there? Uh, one of ones. No, I had a I had a lovely conversation with the energy minister for Portugal. So he was he was at an event that our CEO was was talking about, and he did a a very good presentation talking about how Portugal have effectively at the end of this month, end of November, will have phased out coal. So you know, I, I gave him a, a standing ovation and a quick chat on the on the way out to congratulate them. But it was a you know a fantastic achievement that a, a European country have got to that place and certainly deserved some celebration. How long did that take to get rid of coal? I mean, that's a major, major accomplishment there, did he say? It, it's certainly easier for some countries. It depends on on, on what their uh, energy infrastructure is. So I, my understanding is that Portugal had two main sites, which they've managed to kind of decommission. So it doesn't mean they've got rid of fossil fuels. So there's a kind of distinction there running through COP, but they've got rid of their coal-fired power plants. Very interesting. So tell me about the overall vibe. Was it hopeful? Was it positive? Was it what you expected? Going into it, um, there was a lot of hope, a lot of optimism, a lot of politicians talking about, you know, Boris Johnson was talking about one minute to midnight, you know, we've, we're going to get it solved in COP. You know, the challenge of climate change was laid down in Paris of staying in line with 1.5 or 2 degrees. The commitment for COP was to get the commitments for 1.5. But as we got closer to COP, the NDCs, the nationally determined contributions that were coming through from the governments, I think, made it clear that the commitments would not keep us in line with the 1.5 degree rise by the end of the century. And we were probably heading towards, at the start of COP, you know, it was looking like it was going to be more like a 2.4 degree rise. So optimistic going into it, but I think, you know, some disappointment coming out of it. 
Uh, that's that is disappointing to hear that because obviously we have a long way to go to get to where we need to be. Was ESG a hot topic at the event at all? ESG is always a hot topic, and there was a different days on COP in terms of transport days. There was a financial day, and ESG was definitely a hot topic within the financial day. Um, I'm sorry, the COP, what day? I didn't catch the that. Finance, financial day. There oh, financial a, a, day. Yeah, uh, they, they had different themes on each different day to have focuses in terms of the speakers. So it came up in more in that area, but COP was definitely about climate change. So it's not really about ESG. It is really focused in on the climate change aspects. So it perhaps wasn't mentioned as, as much as it is in other sustainability conversations that are going on at the moment. Did anything jump out at you as a surprise at the event, something you weren't expecting? I was surprised how much our sector certainly after the event, span the outcomes of COP. The outcomes are that we're heading towards, at best, a 1.8, at worst, a 2.4 degree rise. The actual COP formal website actually only mentions the 1.8. So it takes this very best case scenario, which if everything went well and we, we baked in all of these vague commitments and not focused on what actually is happening, we get to 1.8. It didn't mention the 2.4. And I was surprised in terms of people have come out of COP and some people have been very negative in terms of some of the activists, but a lot of the marketplace is saying kind of positive and negative side of it. And to me, that's still a surprise because, you know, ultimately we, we kind of moved 20% towards the target throughout COP. And for such a big event, we really needed to get further on down the line. We needed to be be having some stronger commitments and to, to solve the issue in Glasgow. And, and now one of the outcomes is there's now the encouragement to come back next year. So rather than going on a five-year cycle, we'll come back next year. And I think it's in Egypt next year for COP27. And there is a strong encouragement. There's still not a mandate, but there's a strong encouragement for countries to come back and, and make some better commitments. Um, yeah, I don't want to spend too much time on countries, but it's interesting to see, you read stories about countries that made promises early in COP26, and then by the end of it, we're already backtracking on that. But I think that kind of speaks to how difficult and challenging this is actually going to be to keep within the 1.5. And you're saying they were talking up to, what'd you say, 2.4? That's a huge challenge for world nations to kind of come together and do this. But I do want to talk about the business aspect of this. And did you have a chance to talk to a lot of companies when you were there? And what was the vibe that you got from them? I, I think the businesses, I'm, I'm more optimistic. There was a whole range of organizations, senior level speakers coming along and presenting at COP. And there's definitely a feel that I have personally, but also from the, from the business leaders that potentially politicians are not going to be able to solve this. And they're going to come up with commitments that are not going to lead to that fast uh, transition to, to potentially keep 1.5 alive. But with businesses, I've, I've got a little bit more hope. The business leaders were definitely more, um, more aggressive in their commitments, more bold in what they were looking to do. You know, we had the, in the transport day, we had automotive companies, you know, uh, backing zero uh, emission cars in 2040, 2035 in, in some, some marketplaces. Not all automotive manufacturers signed up to that. But those kind of commitments, I think, think were welcome. And, you know, we saw those across the different organizations. There were some great examples from uh, companies like JCB with, you know, hydrogen powered tractors and electric vehicles. So there's some great technology out on the marketplace. On the abatement side was also one of the speakers from Carbon Fix, who actually shared a platform with our, with our CEO talking about how you could have carbon storage 
effectively taking CO2 from the atmosphere and, and turning it into a solid rock. And it's those kind of technologies that could be combined with you know, the fossil fuel industry to, to potentially provide window of optimism of how we can move forward, but still meet those targets of, of 1.5. Yeah, you kind of got to my next question. I was curious about any innovations that you saw at the event that were uh, noteworthy. And you mentioned one of them with the carbon, but were there any others? Yeah, I think carbon fix was the one that stood out for me and I think stood out for a lot of people in terms of there's there's language in the final document about unabated kind of coal power, unabated fossil fuels. Can we have a fossil fuel industry that could keep on going but would have technology that doesn't exist today? I mean, a lot of the bets are or that this technology will be able to scale to a point of which where we can have carbon capture and storage. You know, there's a there's a lot of investment going into that area. There's a lot of political capital going into that area. You know, without success in carbon capture and storage, whether it be by people like Carbon Fix or, or other technologies around the world, then you know we're definitely going to be in real trouble. So it was very nice to see their presentation. It was nice to hear about their pilot programs, and it was nice to see their their early success. So. That was one organization that, yeah, I was really glad that I got to see that presentation. Excellent. And greenhouse gas, GHG, is obviously a really big issue. And when we were preparing for this podcast, you had shared a quote with me that said something to the effect of greenhouse gas accounting isn't rocket science. I wanted to get your take on that, because if that's the case, then why are so many companies struggling in their efforts to achieve net zero and science-based targets? So the quote came from from GRI, who who were talking, and we kind of repeated it. Sarah, like, I mean, the calculations that we do, the equations are not that difficult. It's it's kind of you know multiplying a couple of numbers together. I think what's missing, uh, and the companies that say that they're finding it challenging, is the will to do it and the investment to do it. The business case for sustainability is significant, and you see organisations like Tesla kind of proving the point in terms of the benefits that they're getting about moving early. But when we look at what companies are investing, it's often a, a really small fraction of what that business case is. So why they're saying it's challenging, it's because they're not really investing in their digitalization approaches. They're not investing in, 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 in their internal teams to, to solve them. So with greater will on the, on the business to say, OK, there are some barriers here. There are some issues that we have to solve, but it's not rocket science to, to solve them. Right. We just have to potentially invest an appropriate amount of money. And, you know, put some effort, put some shoulder behind the wheel to get it, get it solved. So how do you persuade businesses that are resistant to dive into this, that there is a business case for sustainability? I think most, I mean, it's different around the world. So I know we speak to our U.S. colleagues and, and they are you know, telling us that they are, you know, talking about generating that first business case of why an organization should move. In, in Europe, I think the understanding of the business case is there, but what's missing is, is the scaling. So we often work with them to understand what is the true business value. If you look at the increased sales, if you look at the reduced cost, if you look at the reduced risk, if you look at the investment, you know, lower price loans, and you add them all up, we end up with a figure 10, sometimes 20 times what they were considering as, as the business value. So in, in Europe, you know, we have a we have a way of working with them to understand the true value of the business case and, and come up with a number uh, using some of their data that really is an eye-opener, and they hadn't realized that that big. And then in, I think in our, in our U.S. marketplaces, you know, perhaps those conversations are, are, are starting and we're you know, talking to the clients about you know, the basics of the, of the sustainability business case. 
Yeah, you talk about the data, and I've talked to several Sphera sustainability consultants about this, and the data is out there. It's just basically how do you harness that data? Is that sort of the issue in terms of improvement in terms of sustainability? Yeah, there's there's definitely a, a data capture issue. So often the data is is there, and it's about feeding it through the organization and creating meaning from it. So if we look at some of our large multinationals, while the data is out there, I'm, I'm not kind of uh, underestimating the challenge of bringing that all together into one final number for a, you know an oil and gas giant or a chemicals giant. It often resides in multiple systems in multiple different formats with different levels of accuracy. But yeah, largely the data is out there and it has to be collected. There are some aspects of scope three reporting. So some of the value chain reporting for greenhouse gases, which is a big theme of data collection, where the data may not be out there or may not be at hand for these organizations. But it's really about a process of asking your, your suppliers for the data and then starting to collect it. So that if they looked in their organizations right now, they wouldn't find the data. But it's not overly complicated to start talking to your suppliers, certainly your key suppliers, and asking them to provide the data. And often they're very happy to provide the data. It's just that they've never been asked. Definitely. And how big of a topic was Scope 3 at COP26? Are companies really ready to make that transition to looking at Scope 3, or are they still struggling with Scopes 1 and 2? Different businesses in different countries were having different frameworks. So it was definitely an international audience. So in some of the emerging markets, it's more on kind of Scope 1 and Scope 2. But Scope 3 is definitely a huge uh, topic at COP uh, and outside. So there's the recognition of an organization's greenhouse gas emissions are not just their scope one and scope two emissions. It does extend through all the different categories of scope three and particularly purchase goods and services and use of sold products. For the large multinationals who are kind of leading the challenge, that's that's their challenge that they're currently looking to go and get that data. And, you know, like I said, you know, we can get the data, but we just if we ask a supplier for the data, you know, once and don't ask them again and we ask a thousand suppliers, we may not get a lot of responses, right? And then we may say, okay, well, we didn't get responses and, and move on. It's too difficult. So organizations have to put that will and budget in there that if we're going to go to our value chain to go and get these greenhouse gas numbers, we're going to have to put some effort. We're going to have to chase them. We're going to have to support the value chain. We may even have to invest in the value chain in order to help our suppliers improve and produce lower products with lower greenhouse gas numbers. Well, that sounds like a true value to me. So any other final observations from uh, COP26? I know that you said there was a bunch of tents. Can you tell me a little bit about that? I went in the second week of COP, so I think I think things had started to quieten down. So I think the first week there was huge queues. There was obviously, a, it was a COVID secure venue. So international travelers, travelers trying to enter the venue with all their kind of COVID negative t- uh, tests did, did create a backlog, but it was, it was held in Glasgow Science Museum and around the dock area. Yes, with lots of pop-up tents and lots of uh, exhibitions and interesting bits of low-carbon tech in the car park. So, yeah, it was an interesting event to be able to to see for the first time for myself. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your observations from COP26 with us. It was a pleasure talking to you, Sandy. Thanks, James. Want more safety, sustainability, and productivity-related content? Check out Sphera Spark, your new home for expert information from Sphera and outside contributors designed to spark a conversation. Visit Sphera.com slash spark today.